Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Same 24 Hours podcast. I have a very special guest today. Although he is known as the co-founder, probably best known as the co-founder and first CEO of Netflix, Mark Randolph's career spans more than four decades. And I was so honored to have the opportunity to speak with him today. And there's a little cameo by my young 13-year-old son as well. But he is the um, author of the international best-selling memoir, That Will Never Work, and also the host of the podcast by the same name. We talk about grit, determination, some classic mistakes that entrepreneurs make, and the first time I encountered a Netflix DVD. (laughs) So I hope you all enjoy this episode with the co-founder of Netflix, Mark Randolph, and check out his podcast, That Will Never Work, and make sure you give it a good subscribe. Hi, and welcome to the same 24 hours podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Good to see you. Okay, so I have a surprise for you. (laughs) I have a very special guest. Come here. Put this in. This is my 13-year-old son, James. He would like to say thank you for all of your work in co-founding Netflix and making his life bearable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are very, very welcome. I'm so glad. uh, I'm so glad it helped. What do you like watching? What's your favorite show? Uh, Avatar Last Airbender is pretty good on Netflix when it came out on there. Oh yeah. Good. My kids loved that show. They were totally <laughs> addicted to it. So that's great. Yeah. So at least you, uh, you've got good taste. There you go. <laughs> All right. You're released. Give me my earbud though. Okay. <laughs> so Meredith, is that you? Is it you saying thank you or him saying thank you? A little bit of both. I mean, I have to be <laughs> honest, like, thank you for the hours of content that, I mean, gosh, you know, I was thinking about Netflix, um, obviously when, I reached out to interview you, but my earliest memory of Netflix, I was in college and I was watching the De Niro movie Heat on my computer because that was the only DVD player. And that was the first movie I rented from Netflix. Wow. Um, and I thought, this is really interesting. I should probably get a DVD player for my television <laughs> because it's not convenient to sit at my desk. But what a journey you have been on. Well, you know, of course, that when we started Netflix, my kids were all pretty small. And so as part of the whole kind of research thing uh, into these DVDs, this is early on, I bought one of the very, very first portable DVD players. I mean, these th- it was probably, you know, the size of a paperback book, a little bit bigger. Right. Um, and we took it with us on a plane trip um, and with the kids. And it was unbelievable because it was probably the first time in years where my wife and I could actually sit on a plane and like read a magazine, talk to each other, (laughs) because all of a sudden uh, our son was able to watch a movie on the plane. So, uh, and that was the precursor, I think, to what uh, millions and millions of uh, 
frazzled parents who all of a sudden quickly need a break. Uh, I don't know what my parents did. I mean, I guess we read books. Um, there was the disc man that, you know, we had music for a bit, but I mean, what well, an amazing they, adventure. <laughs> well, the alternative, the alternative was go play in traffic, oh you know, go out, get out of the house, go do something. So I know, you know, we were just some, in the, go ahead. <laughs> in some ways there's uh, some element of, uh, of irony here, you know, that, uh, for someone who spends so much time outdoors and for which the outdoors is such a big part of my life, to have perhaps the thing that I'm best known for being a way for people to spend more time in front of a screen. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that. But listen, during COVID, I know I've gotten so many comments exactly like uh, yours and your son's where being confined, being not able to travel, not able to see friends and having um, a friend like Netflix um, right. really got a lot of people through. Well, it's funny because when I mentioned to James that I was, he's unimpressed by people I speak to all the time and I speak to some great people, but I told him who I was interviewing, he's like, oh, and he paused. I said, do you want to say hi? He's like, oh no. Oh, but I do. Oh, but I don't. Oh, but I do. <laughs> I was like, when are you going to get to say thank you for this? But um, so let's, I don't know how far you want to rewind. Cause I know you've got, I mean, you're most known probably for co-founding Netflix, but you have got a long, rich history of entrepreneurship and failure and determination and grit. So where do you want to start? I, I like the topic of grit because I think it's such a, a gritty word when it comes to entrepreneurship. So let's start there. How gritty are you? I'm really gritty. You know, uh, I don't necessarily think about it except looking backwards. Um, and, and I prefer to call it persistence. Okay. Um, I don't really give up very easily. And in fact, the more challenging something is, the more I dig in, in uh, saying, I'm going to figure out um, a way to do mm. this. And it's different than what I think a lot of people attribute persistence too, which is I'm going to prove people wrong. I, I could care less what other people think. This is, it's a challenge uh, mm. that I'm going to try and overcome. It's a puzzle that I'm going to solve. It's something wrong with the world that I'm going to figure out a way to write. And I think that's part of what's driven me, you know, probably since I was as old as your son. You know, when I, I, I had this early going way back this early job as a door-to-door -door salesman selling seeds for the American oh. seed company. Um, Did you? Now that is gritty. Of, like our kids don't do that anymore. No, it's, it, it's true. real life. <laughs> well, the, the closest thing I can think now is that every single school in America has somehow latched on to the fact that they can enlist children into a form of child slavery without any consequence and have them selling giant candy bars and wreaths. And I'm sure you Use, can name uh, all the things. paper. Um, <laughs> there you cookie go. Dough. Cookie dough was my favorite. That's a good one. So you <laughs> see, I was out there, pump, I was out there pumping seeds but it was the same thing. It's giving these kids, I mean, on one hand, you go, God, it's just making money for, a, for a, you know, for the PTA or whoever it was, or for the trip to Washington, D.C. or whatever the cause is. But what it really does is make kids face that closed door 
and say, I've got to walk up, I've got to knock on that door, I've got to overcome this fear um, and see how I react to that. And for me, certainly with C's, you know, I got the door slammed in my face way, way more times than I was invited in for cookies. Um, <laughs> but it, it became this challenge of what can I say? What can I do? What can I wear? Um, and if I do get an order, what can I now do to try and get a bigger order? Um, and that happened by itself. But it's funny because that really is what an entrepreneur does all the time. And so that pattern has stayed mm. with me, uh, has stayed with me forever. Do you have any memory of the best-selling seeds? <laughs> no, not the slightest. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty commoditized, to tell you the truth. Um, although I was quite fond of uh, morning glories, because I used to, okay. my mother used to always buy a bunch of those. Either whether it was out of pity or whether it was uh, because she genuinely was fond of morning glories, that was always a big bestseller for me. Oh, that's funny. Well, I remember when we did, I, I think third grade for me was candy bar sales. And yeah. I was terrified to talk to strangers because I also grew up in the period of time where um, my parents, you know, made me be, we were scared of everything and everyone because that's when kidnapping was like a big publicized <laughs> thing. So they were like, don't go near cars or strangers, but go sell candy bars, you know, so I was very <laughs> torn in this like, well, what do I do? And so my parents would always end up buying the candy bars, which probably a terrible lesson um, on their part. But at the same time, I didn't get snatched. Right. But with the candy bars, I ended up, you know, developing an affinity for chocolate, <laughs> which led yeah. to other problems down the road. But um, yeah, I, I feel like my kids haven't had to sell anything. So they're probably a little soft. Might need to I get think, them to sell something this summer. <laughs> I think that's, that is where, that, that is where persistence comes from is, you know, it, it, it's this constant, anyone who has kids knows this balance. You, you want to coddle your kids. You don't want them to have difficulty, but life is full of things that are difficult. And perhaps even more interestingly, a lot of things which are immensely pleasurable are pleasurable because they're difficult. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned I'm a big outdoors person uh, and I desperately wanted my kids to enjoy being outdoors, meaning doing things like climbing or, or backpacking or surfing. But, you know, surfing requires paddling out. It requires getting <laughs> knocked over by waves. It requires right. being scared all for that 15 or 20 second thrill ride. Um, and getting to a peak and getting that magnificent view from the summit requires suffering for two or three hours and learning that some of the best things in life require this um, determination. I'm, I'm just, I'm right now gearing up in three weeks, I'm gonna be climbing, climbing Rainier again, a big, a big peak in the Pacific Northwest um, with my son and my daughter. Um, and uh, it is a very unpleasant day. You get up at midnight and uh, you're climbing through the night and you're doing, you know, over the period of almost 24 hours, you do about 10, 11,000 feet of climbing. It's awful. But of course, you get to then see the sun coming up just as you're getting to the summit and you're on a volcano. So of course, the views are hundreds of miles in every direction. It's indescribable. But it comes from this recognition, I'm going to suffer and suffer <sighs> for a, a fair amount. And anyway, I think that 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 that's that's grit. That's persistence. That's uh, a large part of what being an entrepreneur is too. 
Well, now that we're on the topic of kids and climbing mountains and like I did a couple Ironmans and same thing. Ah. It's like, why would you get up at 3 a.m. to do this, to barely finish at midnight four times? Because I'm always, you know, I got my money's worth out of every Ironman. They gave me 17 <laughs> hours. I was like, I'm going to be out there till the last minute. Um, but it is that sense of like, if I suffer, then I get, I don't know, a banana <laughs> at the yeah. end. Um, a piece of metal. But- I get a piece of metal, but how do we teach our, I mean, just, you know, I know you're not a child psychologist, but how do we teach this generation, the concept of suffering when it's such a different world out there? I mean, we take them on hikes. We let them get a little thirsty. I know we've done that with our kids. You know, they, they don't want to be in the woods. They (laughs) throw a temper tantrum, but it so much of what you mentioned about climbing and what I'm thinking about with Ironman and entrepreneurship. I mean, it does take suffering and we all suffered growing up, but I feel like it's not you're, allowed you're now. Very, <laughs> unless you're, you're more of a uh, superwoman than I even imagined, you, your very first day out on a bike or running or swimming was not doing the Ironman. Oh, that's In true. Other words, you started out <laughs> with something considerably more modest True. Uh, you, you know, and maybe if you were lucky when you were six or seven, you did a half mile fun run or less. Oh yes. Those were not uh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the but, mile run but, and the PE test about undid me every year. Okay. Good point. Yeah. So we did this. But, but, but the thing is that, and again, it's, it's, there's this lingering parallel track between entrepreneurship and, and these early uh, challenges of being, uh, being young is that, you can't jump in to something which a professional athlete does and still suffers. Uh, you work your way up to that. And most things are like that. And so mm. going back again, I'm no child psychologist, nor am I, you know, my, my parenting experience is three. Uh, that's as far as it goes. And, uh, but you learn that, that the way to do this is to subject is to be extremely smart about how you scale things, uh, which is you say, we're going to do something small. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, there'll be a little bit of unpleasantness, but not brutal, just a little bit. And there'll be a fairly nice reward to it. And you'll see how someone reacts to that. But the same thing goes, you know, for I, so many people, young people want to be entrepreneurs. You know, they they love the idea of starting businesses or even for the, the strange thing aspects of this bizarre notion they're going to be rich or famous but more because they go i have this idea i want to make it real and they get stuck they don't know where to start and they figure i have to raise money or i need to get a technical co-founder i need to get an mba or a computer science degree and i go no if you really want to start a business just start one just sell seeds do something that doesn't require all those things begin finding out whether you do in fact like this or not so it's the same thing. You don't, uh, the, your very first climbing trip is not to uh, Mount Everest. The very, when you're learning a language, you don't immediately jump into being the simultaneous translator to the United Nations. You just struggle over ordering a cup of coffee. But right. that is how you learn the language. That is how you get to be a decent climber. That's how you get, become a good entrepreneur is by starting really small and, uh, and learning that way. Is that one of the classic mistakes is, is cart before the horse thinking too big or, or how do you feel about thinking? I guess maybe that's a different conversation, thinking big versus planning big. 
but no, it's 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 the same thing. Uh, okay, it, it's um it's it is absolutely uh, the biggest mistake. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that the mistake is thinking big. The mistake is too much thinking to begin with in that mm-hmm. someone has this idea, a great idea. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine how cool this idea is. And then they do the very natural thing is they go, okay, I got to figure out if this is a good idea or not. And they begin writing things down and researching and thinking and planning. And, and now they're scared. And so they keep thinking some more. At the more they think, the better the idea is. Just imagine how when we have a million users, all these things we can do, and it gets more and more elaborate and more and more innate. And of course, then when they want to start, it's impossible. It's incredibly expensive, incredibly complicated. Uh, and so that's the failure. And as a result, 99% of the people don't start. Uh, and what a real entrepreneur does is the instant the idea pops in their head, they don't waste time trying to figure out, is it a good idea or a bad idea? They don't go around asking lots of people. They don't do business plans. They just immediately, intuitively try and figure out some quick and easy way to test it, to try it, to build something or make something or sell something. Because by instantly colliding the idea, even in this nascent half-formed, one-quarter-formed state, you collide the idea with reality and begin learning whether it's a good idea or not. And what separates, in my experience, a successful entrepreneur is purely that they think less and they do more. They start. They try. And the rest of the people are dreamers. Well, so much of, I mean, we have well-meaning friends and family, but I know every time I have said, I'm going to do something big and I got someone else's opinion. If I had listened to them, I wouldn't have done any of it. <laughs> like not a one, you know, I wouldn't have done Iron Man. I wouldn't have written a book because in the one time I did take someone's advice is um, I said, I was going to go to journalism school because I wanted to be a writer. And they said, well, you know, you're not going to make any money writing. And I was an impressionable 18 year old. And I was like, well, I need to make money. Maybe I'll be a lawyer. (laughs) So I went to law school and I ended up hating law school, hating being a lawyer, did that for 13 years and then ended up being a writer, you know? So it's like, we can listen to the opinions of other people and they mean, well, I mean, it is hard to make money writing, but how do you get over that hump? How, how do you really have enough resolve or what, training can you do in your own brain to say, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to act. I'm not going to, I'm going to put on my blinders or I'm going to take it with a grain of salt. Like what, what do you do if you're not a really bold person and you, you really weight people's thoughts and and opinions? Uh, That's a great question with a bunch of different directions. I could go with it. So also I'll do, I'll try two. So the first thing is, I think you're aware that my book it's called That Will Never Work. Right. Uh, and my podcast is called That Will Never Work. And my clubhouse room was called That Will Never Work. And it's like this motif throughout my life. And it's because that is what everyone said. Every idea that I had. Uh, Netflix, you know, when I pitched it to investors, when I try and get employees to join, when uh, I told my wife about it, you know, <laughs> everyone says the same thing, which is that'll never work. And you quickly realize that nobody has a clue. No one knows anything. (laughs) Any idea which has never been done before, 
there is no magic oracle that you can go to who does know, in fact, whether it will work or not. But that's easy for me to say, because you're correct. Um, it's human nature to not want to do things which aren't going to work. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be seen as failures. So of course you want to get other people's validation because maybe there's in some strange, for some strange reason, you think, well, if they say it's a good idea, it doesn't work. Well, then it's their fault. Oh, that's um, good. Yeah. 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 But the answer really is how do you get over that? And it's the, it's the answer is the same as to our previous question, which is you have to start small. You have to begin taking risks, which are reasonably inconsequential. Uh, because that's how you learn that in fact, all the things that people said would never work do work or all the things they thought were so exciting um, were not so exciting. Or more importantly, that by making a mistake or having something actually not work, the sky doesn't collapse. Right. I mean, I, I uh, you know, when I have uh, college entrepreneurs, I do a lot of work with college age entrepreneurs who come up and say, I'm trying to figure out where to start, where to begin. I'm a little nervous. I just feel like smacking them because <laughs> I go, you have the most unbelievably cushy opportunity here. No matter what you do, you can still walk down the, uh, uh, the path and go to the cafeteria and get a meal. Uh, you are, can still go back to your dorm room where you have a place to stay. You still are going to have friends. You still... All those things, the risk is incredibly tiny. So now is the chance for you to be putting it on right. the line. And you don't have something. a mortgage and debt and children. Yeah. Yes, that's such a good point. Yeah. And even those of us who have mortgages and who have children and have day jobs and all those things, that's why I say, don't make this decision about, do I quit my job and right. follow my dreams? No. God's <laughs> right. like, no. Figure out a way to do it on the side. Do it. Do it at night, do it early in the morning, do it on weekends, begin making these risks when they're not existential risks, that the worst that could happen is the thing you tried didn't work. And right. again, this is the song, this is what makes someone a good entrepreneur besides the starting piece is not how good your ideas are. Ideas don't count for anything. What counts now is how clever you can be and how creative in figuring out quick and easy and cheap ways to actually try them. Yeah, because yeah, those are the things point. you can do from right. your garage on your spare time in the weekend. Well, I guess I was about eight years into my legal career and my kids were maybe two and three. And I came to my husband and I said, I think I'm going to quit my job and write a book. And he looked at me and he goes, President Obama wrote a book when he was in the White House. You're not quitting your job. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at him and I, anyone that's heard me knows the story. They're like, oh, Matt was telling this again. But I remember that. And I thought, what a jerk. How I want he let me just quit my job. But it made me so mad that I wrote the book in like nine months. And it was, you know, I was done. Book was done. And I was still a lawyer. But my exit plan to get out of the law was about I don't know, six years, right? From the time. Right you know, and I yeah. did have to do it. And, and so I always encourage people like, just like you do, just start. You, you're, you'll be so surprised. It really doesn't take that long to write a book. <laughs> it's annoying, but you do a couple pages a day. You can do it. Yes. 
it's one of the few things you actually can do little teeny bits at a part at a piece right. and doesn't spoil. It doesn't go bad. It just sits there on your word processor while you add more to it. And lo Taunting and behold, you and telling you you should be a better writer <laughs> and no one will read this and no one likes you. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, tell me what you think about gut. What do you feel like in all your years of entrepreneurship, where does gut play a role? Like your gut instinct. Oh, a lot. Yeah. But maybe not in the way you think. Uh, you know, the first half of my career, the first 10 plus years, I was a direct marketing person. You know, I did junk mail. I did catalogs, did mail order. Um, I did direct response. And the key element of direct response is its measurability that you can mail out a blue envelope and a red envelope and you wonder wonder which one's going to do better well in four or five days you know exactly which one does better to four or five decimal points of how much better it does and there's a wonderful um, completeness in that process which that you need gut to go well, do I test red or do I test blue or green or yellow? Or do I test the envelope color at all? Uh, I have this gut feeling that if I try this, it might work. So I think that part is so critical, but it always has to be tempered with some way of measuring whether how you're going to judge you are right or not. So uh, a data-driven culture is in my opinion, much, much better than a uh, intuition-driven culture. I would much rather have someone come walk into my office. Well, actually rather have someone be able to walk into the office these days, but I'd much rather have someone walk in my office and say, hey, Mark, listen, I think we try this because the data shows, then come in and say, I think we should try this because I've just got this hunch. <laughs> and, right. and the other beautiful thing about, um, data-driven versus hunch-driven is that you've probably heard that expression, you know, listen, yeah, oh, if all we have today's opinions, well, then my opinions can be the one that counts. <laughs> and which it's a natural uh, uh, inclination. Is that- Were you in my you kitchen meeting, this morning talking to my children? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But if, if people are coming in, if, if the decision-making is all data-driven, you never know whose idea is going to be the one that breaks it open. And it trains you to stop looking to the person with the biggest title mm. um, or who makes the most money or the man, uh, you know, all these other flawed methodologies we've used for who makes the decision in the meeting and having this culture that says it ultimately is we're going to measure this based on the data yeah. Um, does force a tremendous democratization of decision-making. So yes, I think it's important you have both, but not yeah. one without the other. What are you most proud of aside from the, you know, the answers you have to have, like my family and, you know, career-wise? Because a lot of times, like you hear Tom Brady interviewed and you think he's going to be proudest of X Super Bowl and it's this random game against the Buffalo Bills. Like, is there a moment in your career that you're just most proud of that people wouldn't know? So Meredith, I, it's, it's so cynical of you. What you, <laughs> is it, it's not possible for a, uh, 
for an entrepreneur or a sports figure to be proud of their, uh, their family. Yes. Their- but that's the right answer that everyone wants to give. They want, you know, they want to say, I'm most proud of my family. So I'm trying to, I'm not most proud of my family in that, in the sense that you, th- <laughs> in the sense that you think, think but I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give the wrong answer, <laughs> even though it's, even though it, well, you can see the mental, tr- the, 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 ah, this is a lawyerly trick here. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. But listen, so what am I proudest of? Um, uh, it's, well, I'm, I'm not going to make something up. Uh, <laughs> it's something different. I'll, I'll pick a third. It's, I'm proud of that I've achieved uh, an order of balance in my life. Mm. Um, which I've been working at way, wow. way longer than I'm working on being a great entrepreneur and way, way longer than I've want, worked on have, making sure I'm there and present for my family and way longer than I have thought about being, um, making sure I spend enough time outdoors doing things. The challenge in life or the challenge in my life, because uh, I, I can't speak for anybody else, is how do you balance all three of those things? Um, and I did vow very, very early on in my career as an entrepreneur that I was not going to be an entrepreneur who was on their sixth company, but also on their sixth wife. Mm. I was going to be someone who was so consumed with getting my startup off the ground that I didn't get a chance to go surfing or mountain biking or backcountry skiing. And, and uh, it was a curse that the types of things that I knew made me whole, these outdoors things, weren't the types of things that I could squeeze in between my 11 o'clock meeting and my two o'clock call. They required getting on a bush plane and flying into Northern Canada, or they required a two day approach hike. I mean, I, you, you, these, to make those things fit with the seven by 24 nature of doing startups. And you know, Netflix was number six and I've done seven altogether. Um, is not something you go, oh, if I have some free time, I'll go run out and do this. doesn't work right. that way. And I know it's kind of off limits here, but the, listen, the family stuff is the same way, is that it's completely unfair to my wife, my best friend, that I'm going to squeeze that in, in the time that's left over from the other things. You have to, if you want that to be a part of your life, you've got to build a life that accommodates those things. So, so what, what is, so what am I most proud of it? Listen, I, I, I've started, I've had started seven companies. Okay. And two of them um, were huge, you know, Netflix and looker, you know, both multi-billion dollar companies. Okay. Fantastic. Good for me. Um, what am I most proud of is not doing that. What I'm most proud of is doing that while yes. staying married um, to the same woman for uh Oh yeah, as of two days ago, twenty-three years, uh, having three, having three kids who, as far as I can tell, uh, know me and like me, uh, and still getting out to climb and backcountry ski and mountain bike. So that's what I'm proudest of. You found the loophole. That's like the perfect <laughs> answer. That's like the perfect answer. So what, I mean, aside from being mindful and being determined to not squeeze your wife in and not have that mindset, like what did you do? You know, did you, did you say seven, you know, 10 o'clock, no emails, like what were your boundaries that you set? So it's really hard. Um, 
it's uh, startups are hard uh, yeah. just because they're antithesis of schedulable. Uh, things happen. The rhythm is unpredictable. When you're doing a fundraise, uh, it's all hands on deck. When your company's in the verge of going out of business, it's all hands on deck. You've, in fact, you almost never get all, get all, any of the hands off the deck in a startup. <laughs> so um, it is boundaries. And I will tell you one story. And I've, I've, as with your book story, I've told this one before because it's, it, it's so important, which is that I had this principle and this predates Netflix, but it was that every single Tuesday without fail, five o'clock, I was out the door uh, and my wife would have a sitter and we would do a date night, uh, no phones. Um, and if you, people know how, anyone who works knows how hard that is. And especially at a startup, there is always a crisis. But I was resolute about it, that there's, there's no mm. exceptions here, that if there's a crisis, we are going to wrap it up by five. Or if you <laughs> absolutely have to speak to me, well, we're going to do it in the way to the car. Um, and this amazing thing happens. Um, I'm a big believer in that culture is behavioral, not aspirational. But after you say it enough, it's kind of this amazing miracle happens that crises stop happening after five o'clock on Tuesday. And right. then even more powerfully, all the people realize that when Mark gets up every so often and goes how important balance is and that he's not just spouting, uh, he's not just doing the break room poster, uh, that he's serious, he's walking the walk. And then they, amazingly enough, they, all the people begin taking time for themselves. So it's, it's these boundaries uh, and it's obsessive planning. It's recognizing that you have to plan forward, but you've got to measure yourself backwards. I, you know, every, every week um, I look back and say, how do I do every month? I look back and say, how did I do every quarter? And then a big one every year about how did I do on balance and what can I do to get better at it? And what mistakes am I making? And how do I feel this is not working? And, yeah. Um, it's, it only happens if you, these big, difficult things only happen if you say, this is what's important to me and I'm going to do what I have to do to make them happen. Do you have a morning routine? Uh, yes, but it's, uh, there's a big conflict for me. The best time to get out and exercise is first thing in the morning, yeah. but I love waking up, taking a hot tub making, I have a really nice espresso machine, making a coffee and then sitting and reading yeah. uh, for 45 minutes to an hour every morning. And you know, my wife, she sleeps a bit later than me, which will come down, we'll have coffee together. Um, it's this really wonderful time before the day starts uh, where it just feels like it's just me or just me and her. And especially yeah. during COVID, you know, my daughter has the same, it's funny. She has the exact, she's an adult, adult daughter now, but she has the exact same schedule. So both of us will come down and we basically know this is not at the first half an hour while the caffeine's uh, <laughs> hitting is not a time for conversation. Right. It's just, so the two of us will be sitting there reading, drinking our coffee. Very nice. Love it. I hear you. Cause my daughter, we tend to get up at five 30 and go to CrossFit, but <laughs> it's like, I, I like to sit and read and coffee, but you know, certain days are certain days, but um, yeah. yeah, sometimes you just got to go pound some barbells. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, it, it, those are two. Listen, if I get up early in the morning and go for a run or go for a hike, those are, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good start to the day, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your podcast. That will never work. So you are actually talking to like everyday people, right? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a little different because initially people are going, oh, you should do a podcast and just think of the guests you can get. And maybe it's true because I do have a lot of friends who are successful entrepreneurs. I could have done, an, I could have done a version of how I built this, but there's already a how I built this and it's way better than I could do. Um, and I went a different direction because, you know, for 20 years, I've been kind of mentoring um, other entrepreneurs. I've been trying to get people to get off their butt and do something. Or if they're already doing something, they try and say, how can we make this a bit better for you? Um, and if there was a breakthrough, it was about a year or so ago, I began recording those calls and, you know, with their permission and right. purely because I wanted to be able to say, when someone called me with a similar issue to say, this, listen to this call and then we'll talk. And it was really kind of interesting because it was surprising to me. I mean, because the people would listen to the call and go, that was helpful in terms of the technical thing you were talking about. But the really interesting thing was realizing I'm not alone because mm. entrepreneurship in many ways is a very lonely uh, uh, profession. And to have this realization that other people are struggling with the same things and not struggling with things like marketing or sales or your technology, but struggling with things like life balance or struggling with how do I get along with my co-founder or struggling with my board, which are not things you hear talked about a lot, um, right. we're finding valuable. And the other thing is they were, they were saying, I want to meet this person because gosh, it's so interesting. I'm drawn in, I'm, I'm identifying. And that made me realize that if just one person wanted to hear it, maybe other people did. And so in a nutshell, what the podcast is, is basically me talking to everyday people. These are not captain and captainesses. Captain's gender neutral. Yeah, of course it is. Captains of industry. In fact, assuming it might not be gender neutral is making an assumption. Okay. Captains of industry. Um, It's talking to people who are have an idea and trying to figure out where to start or have a side gig trying to make it a real business or have a real business trying to bring it to the next level. And I give them the exact same mentoring as if it was me spending an hour with them on the phone one-on-one, but now I let other people listen in. And it's been, it's been incredible. The number of questions and problems they have is way more than I thought uh, would come out. The, uh, the businesses are all over the place from someone who's doing uh robotic house building to someone who has a gallery for erotic art to someone who's building a 60,000 square foot indoor adventure park uh, wow. in Texas. Um, they're the coolest uh, businesses, the most interesting entrepreneurs. And I get a chance to just sit and chat with them for a half an hour and hopefully give them a nudge and put them on a better path. That's awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. Everyone check out his book, That Will Never Work, and the podcast also by the same title. And I just, you know, we're grateful for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's my purpose now. You know, I've I've done well enough as an entrepreneur, and now I'm kind of saying I, I it, it'd be a shame if I didn't take all the things I've learned in my 40 years and use that to try and get some other people uh, to hopefully have a shot at 
the same fulfillment um, that I've found as an entrepreneur. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Meredith, it's been a pleasure. It's really fun, uh, really fun chatting with you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.